sweetheart. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. Boarding House Reach wasn't for everybody. Yeah. The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! between the two years. Yeah. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. What was that? What was that, Sonny? You're going to have to speak up. I want a good, clean fight. You got it, boss. I, I, I... Not your boss, but I, uh, I, I, we're gonna go over the rules of the boxing match. You hear? You're the boss, boss. All right. I don't want any hitting above or below the belt. How about any hitting in general? I love general hitting. We're gonna, we're gonna keep it to general hitting, but no hitting above or below or to the sides of the belt. What about the buckle, boss? That is bingo. Okay. If you hit, if you hit that one, it's bingo. And how many letters in bingo do I need to win? Okay, and I'm going to go over the second rule of this here boxing match here. Oh, we're gonna eight, do... B6, <laughs> G94, A, <N. laughs> I'm going to go over the second rule of the boxing match here. If you fall out of the ring at any point, we're going to do a count to 46. Okay, boss. So At the it... count of 46, I will remove my shorts. <laughs> what do I do with my shorts when I'm on the you ground? You will definitely... T- you will touch me above and below the belt. Oh, oh boy. This is sounding <laughs> like training day all over again. I'm going to ring the bell now. Okay, here I go. Let me at him. And fight. Let me at him. I'm... I'm gonna find. I'm on the ground already, boss. Do I count to ten? Oh, he's punching my face. I'll punch him. 
right, right, touch right, right, something. Break it up, break it up, break it up. Break it up, you all right, you guys. Clearly you have knocked him out. You've KO'd him. I think I get it. <laughs> Bingo! Oh, this has been <laughs> awful. Just awful. Hey, there's some radio zoo for you. I'm really sorry about this, Co. Yeah, if that you're was listening. A bad one. I'm very sorry about this. It's been like a really long break since we did one of these, and now we're back and we did that. We did bad. We did real bad. Welcome to, to the... To <laughs> we can't be that rusty, James. We can't be that rusty. Well, welcome to the Third Men Podcast. This is a Jack White History Podcast, and I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky, and also boxer-in-law. That. De- yeah, James sure. is a law boxer. Yeah. And uh, we go over Jack White bands and music and albums and TV and all that stuff. And sometimes, James, rock stars talk to us. Sometimes we talk to rock stars. And sometimes they talk back. Yeah. James, we are, of course, referring to our special extended interview with Detroit rock legend Co Molina, singer, songwriter, XM radio personality, bona fide rock star, and a seminal figure, of course, in the Detroit rock boom listeners to the podcast have heard us talking about co since episode one of the show because she's had many interactions with jack white and the jack white world over the years including taking the photos used on the very first white stripes album uh in fact co worked for the white stripes for a time and has been a member of the dirt bombs the come ons the breakdowns she fronted her own group called co and the knockouts and played stints with tons of groups over the years including acts like the detroit cobras co has done it all so james we got a lot to cover today i think this is one of our longest most robust interviews yet robust indeed paul yes very generous with her time and super nice super good interview yeah and boy does she have a lot of of fun stories so yeah you guys are in for a treat yeah you really are there's so much going on here and even just talking to her and doing some further digging into her other projects had a great time she has her hand in most detroit projects uh, Mm -hmm. from that late 90s to current time frame it's remarkable she's on detroit cobra stuff she's in the come on she's got her own band she's in the dirt bomb she's there's so much and she's heavily involved in the white stripes i think comalina is the kind of figure in that world that we had no real concept of like what she was actually going to be like because her reputation preceded her yeah we were scared yeah worried terrified and uh it turned out fantastically yeah uh, we're, we're we were thrilled as it turns out super nice person yeah and really just willing to tell us anything we wanted to know so that was that uh, was great so anyway we're gonna get into all that stuff but first james yeah is there something we should stop doing hey there is oh good it's <laughs> we should stop a breaking down stop breaking down James, would you like to tell the people at home what Stop Breaking Down is? I would love to, Paul. Stop Breaking Down is the portion of the show when we get something wrong, just flat out wrong, and this, it's, this is where we correct it. Yeah, and this week, our Stop Breaking Down comes from an anonymous source, James. Ooh, mysterious sources. Yes. He or she requested not to be named. Mostly because they didn't want to seem like they were being too pedantic. And they're not. We should They're know totally this. not. Yes. Yeah. 
but uh, we got a message that said, hey guys, quick little comment, and this is in reference to our episode 74 two-star tabernacle episode. The commenter here goes on to say, I'm not a Detroit native. Oh, but that does that narrow it down? Boom, boom. We have disguised the voices. <laughs> uh, they wanted to give a little heads up on pronunciation. From what they've heard on their visits to the city of Detroit, Ham, Ham Tramp. We, there's a city called Ham Tramp. Ham Tramic. Yeah, apparently it's pronounced Ham Tramic, and we pronounced it Lord knows any number of ways. Because, as evidenced in my pronunciation of it a moment ago, we have no idea what we're doing. Right. We assumed it was some sort of pig or hog Mm -hmm. strapped to a train and sent down a track. Yeah. And it had some sort of colloquialism to it, so that there's the ham tramp, and it turns out that's wrong. It was all very confusing to us. Yeah, and I had bought the pig and everything thinking there was some kind of festival that I might be able James to James bought a pig. Go to... Have you ever chased a pig around a house? It's very romantic. <laughs> I, <laughs> what, a, what a deep cut. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, anyway, this, this city is pronounced Hamtramck and not whatever in God's name we pronounced it as in that episode. So, anyway, that's a helpful little bit of info there because, James, we are learning a lot about the different Detroit areas mm-hmm. and uh, areas of Michigan that these various bands have played in, which we'll learn actually more about tonight. In fact, uh, in the interview with Co Molina, mm. uh, I actually picked out the name of a suburb that Tom Potter had mentioned in our interview with him back in episode 72. And I, I think Jim Diamond referenced that same suburb. Clearly, these people are following a, uh, a route, a path. Mm. They got areas they're hitting, and we're learning them all, James. We're learning Detroit without actually having to go there, yeah. and we want to go there. So this is the next best thing, aside from, you know, going on Google Maps and taking a little stroll down the street view. Yeah. It's like living in Detroit with less exit wounds. So we should stop a breaking down. Nah, I'm a break. Stop a down. Yeah, make you lose your mind. So, James, you want to get into this interview here? I think we should just jump right in. I'm so excited, Paul. Let's go right into this interview. You don't really sound a James. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm very excited for going into the interview. I know we've been away for a little while, but James, I'm going to need you to really up your radio voice. I demand. You demand. I demand we get into this interview. Let's get into this. Let us get into this interview. Paul, I'm really glad you're back. Still sounding a little coy to me. All right, let's do it. Let's get into it. We'd like to welcome our third person this week, Ko Molina. Yay, hi! Ko? <laughs> Hello! Uh, hi, how are you guys? Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, we finally got it together. Thanks for uh, having me. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming on. We've been slowly collecting Dirt Bombs members uh, <laughs> along the way, one by one, and, and we're finally got in touch with you. It's, it's exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. It's exciting to be on your show. I can guarantee you that... <laughs> The hardest person that you guys are going to have to get on the show is going to be Mick. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so we actually got him. You did? Yeah. 
No. Nick, and I will give you the two-second explanation. We were trying to get a hold of him for months. Yeah. And he kept saying, like, yeah, great. Mm -hmm. And then it never happened. Mm -hmm. And then one night we were on the line with a huge Dirt Bombs fan, a listener of ours named Kate McCoy. And Uh I tweeted at him one last time, Nick, we're talking about the Dirt Bombs. You should join us. And he happened to be online and he was like, give me a number. No So I tweeted my phone number (laughs) at him. And we wound up having this talk about bowling. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i was gonna say like mick is like the hardest person to get a hold of tough. i'm so amazed <laughs> <laughs> we were too it was a highlight of that night speaking of getting a hold of people you are one of these figures that we have been like since we started doing this podcast and we've been learning more and more about the key players in you know detroit music yours was like one of the very first names we ran into and kept running into over and over and over again <laughs> so i feel like we've been uncovering a little more about you every episode that we've done and now you're here on the show and i gotta tell you it's pretty weird for me to be talking to you because you've been like built up to be a figure and now here you are oh my gosh <laughs> i feel like I, I feel weird now <laughs> what paul's trying to say is live up to our expectations he's, he's oh, really no. he's trying oh, no. <laughs> now, this show's gonna be a complete disappointment for you guys <laughs> We, we do aim to make our guests feel extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, we're shock jocks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let's just get right in here. There's a burning question we have. Okay. And it's right. right at the top here, and you can solve it for us once and for all. Okay. What is, like, the name that you prefer to go by? Because there's so many... Oh gosh, yeah. that ...different iterations... That we've run into. We've heard just Co. Yeah. We've heard Comalina. Yeah. We've heard Comalina Zydeco, or I think I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Koshi. What? Okay. What? My my full, my, my legal name. Yeah. Like, that appears on, like, my driver's license and everything. Right. Is Ko Chen Shi. Okay. Okay. And it gets a little weird because... With my family, mm-hmm. how do I explain this? Like, obviously, my family, like my last name, is she. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in my family, there's a generational name, which is Ko. Okay. So, like, my sister, her name is also Ko, but her name name, like my name name, would be Chen. And her name is Ann. Oh. And, like, my cousins, they all have, like, the first you know, the generation name as Co, and then their name is in the middle. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Right, right, right. So growing up, it was kind of weird because we all were born in America, and all the teachers are all like, oh, you're all just Co's, because they just assume that's your first name. Mm -hmm. Right. And somewhere along the line, I don't even remember how or when this happened, but somewhere along the line, I got the name Comalina. Hmm. Comalina Zydeco, I got that name. And I dropped the Zydeco because I didn't really know anything about Zydeco music, and I don't know how th- I don't know how that name came about. I was going to say, so- I haven't heard anything with your name attached to it that has been Cajun or Louisianan in feel. Yeah, exactly. So I just ended up using Comalina just to like differentiate myself from everybody else, because my sister, she just goes by like Co-She. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She mm-hmm. doesn't go by Anne. I don't know. I guess it's easier for, like, Americans. 
<laughs> Does he use Co? <laughs> right. yeah. So yeah, I I usually go by Comalina or just Co. You know, that is way more involved than I thought. Like I I I, <laughs> I guess I didn't know where all the names were coming from, but that makes perfect sense to me. And I guess it just goes to show you how lazy Americans are. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's more. It's not lazy of Americans. It's just more like. A cultural thing, I guess, you know? Sure. Yeah, my wife has a, uh, or had a Hispanic last name, which is, you know, there's a family name of the previous generation and Mm -hmm. also her name. And so she always had two last names. Yeah. And it didn't work with, like, the way driver's license and passport Mm -hmm. places were set up. So they're like, we're going to hyphenate your name. And she's like, but that's not my name. Like, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. And so uh, we still get things (laughs) uh, mailed to, like, Soraka A. Lopez, which has never been her name, like, yeah, it's yeah. just yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, yeah, and it's weird too because it technically my first name is hyphenated, so it's like co if my legal first name, it's like co dash c h i e n, and for most things legally, they won't accept a hyphen in your first name, oh. um, even though that's like my legal first name. Yeah. So if like I try to like you know like go onto a website or something or order something on a website. They won't accept that. Huh. Yeah, it's really bizarre. They won't Man. they won't accept a hyphen as like a character, you know? So if I'm like ordering something online, they won't accept it. So I just have to like get rid of the hyphen, you know, and just mush it all into one word. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. It's a big, weird hassle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, when I was a kid, I was always like saying to my parents, like, why couldn't you have made me something easier? <laughs> you know, like, you know what? How, like, you'll go places and they have, like, rulers with people's names on them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so's ruler. I'm like, I'll never get a ruler. My <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no, but I, no, I, I like it now, though. Well, is that, that Simpsons joke of, like, Bart couldn't find his name. He could only find Bort license plates or whatever. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bort. <laughs> Barclay, Barry, Bert, Bort. Oh, come on, Bort? Mommy, Bobby, buy me a license plate. No, come along, Bort. Are you talking to me? No. My favorite episode of uh, The Simpsons is when they do the Planet of the Apes, the musical. Oh, it's so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, good. so good. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> so oh. good. Yeah. Were you a Simpsons fan? or? Oh, yeah, I used to love The Simpsons. I don't really watch it that much anymore, but, like, I used to watch it pretty religiously. Yeah, that's most people, I think. Is it? <laughs> if it's on, I'll, I'll put it on again. Well, that's skewing off a little bit off topic, but... Uh, okay, all right. Back to the conversation. <laughs> Growing up, did you come from a, a musical family in particular? How did you come to start playing music in general and becoming the co-Molina that we, <laughs> me and Paul both know? When I was a little kid, my parents had me play piano because, <laughs> obviously, I came from a very traditional Chinese background, Chinese-American background, and, you know, that's what you do. You learn how to play Mm. a musical instrument, and it's usually either piano or violin. Mm -hmm. And so I learned how to play piano when I was really, really, really really little. I can remember learning how to read music at about the same time as I learned how to read, like, read, read, you know? Wow. And I spent most of my summers at Interlochen Music Camp. Discover a place where artists come to grow, thrive, and transform. This is where art lives. This 
is Interlochen. It's a pretty, like, pretty prestigious music camp in Upper Michigan. Mm-hmm. Not like the UP of Michigan, but like Northern Michigan. Okay. I didn't realize that it was a big deal when I was a little kid. Like, I was just kind of like, ugh, I gotta go to this stupid music camp. Yeah. I mean, and it's a big deal because I was like six, and you know, six years old. And I'd go up to this music camp for the summer. And their whole deal is that, you know, you go there for one specific instrument. And my instrument was, of course, the piano. But while you're there, they want you to learn other instruments. So the whole thing is, you're there for the summer. It's like sleepaway camp or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so Monday through Saturday, you know, you get up, you have breakfast, and then you have, like, for me, piano lesson. Mm -hmm. So you, like, have an hour and a half of piano lesson, and then you have half an hour to get to your rehearsal space. And they have all these little cabins that are big enough to have, like, an upright piano in every single one of these rehearsal spaces, and then, like, a a music stand Mm. and a chair. So, like, if you play piano or if you play some other instrument, you can practice them. And you sit in that room and you practice for, like, an hour and a half. Yeah. And they have people who walk around and make sure that you're actually practicing, you know, and that that you're not just sitting in there and doing nothing. That's an intense regimen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like six years old, starting at like... (laughs) And and, and you got to realize that this is like practice number one of the day. Yeah. And so you do that for an hour and a half, and then you have some time off to do something else. And then I think we had lunch, and then you get to pick another instrument that you learn for the summer. Mm-hmm. So I think the first year I did like oboe or something like that. And you have like an oboe lesson. Yeah. And then you go back to the practice space and you practice the piano again for an hour and a half. Yeah. You know? Wowzers. Jesus. If, th- if that was transcendental meditation, you would have met God by day two. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny because like, did you ever see that uh, that movie Whiplash? Yeah. Watching that movie, I was like, ah! You know, like, I was like, it kind of like made me feel like like really weird. I watched it with my boyfriend and I had like other people tell me like, oh, you should watch this movie. It's great. You know, and they're like, oh man, this guy's so tough on the poor kid. And I was like, dude, this isn't shit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm like, when I was a kid. Yeah. Did J.K. Simmons ever like kick in the door and (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and like I had some pretty rough piano teachers when I was a kid. Like one of the things that you're supposed to learn when you learn how to play when you're a kid is you're not supposed to look at your hands, you know? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be reading the music, so you never, ever look at your hands. And so one of my early piano teachers, if they ever caught you looking at your hands, they would just take, like, you know, the piano cover that covers the keys, and they would slam it down on your fingers. Knew that was yeah. coming. Oh my god. Yeah, I know, I know. No. So you know so you learn really, really quickly what? that you cannot look at your fingers. You can't look at your hands. Yeah. Are you sure this was Michigan and not Dickensian England? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and did you ever like did by the next year were you just like, I think I'm gonna learn rain stick or triangle? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, like, I ended up learning, like, well, I mean, because once you go there for, you know, your main instrument, which was always piano for me, they know what your main instrument is. Mm -hmm. Because each summer you get to pick up another instrument and try to learn that. And unless you show, like, oh, my gosh, you happen to be a virtuoso in this other instrument, they just have you on, like, the piano track or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's crazy because I wasn't ever really that great at piano. Like, I was a mediocre piano player in terms of that place. Because, I mean, I would go there and I was six. And there'd be five-year-old piano players or, you know, four-year-old piano players who were sitting on, like, phone books. 
and they would be playing with the orchestra that was like, you know, 20 year olds. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was just like, uh. You so know? you were intensely classically trained. I yeah. think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Intensely classically trained pianist. And I mean, I, you know, I learned how to read music. At that point, I had like perfect pitch yeah. because I learned how to sing and all that stuff. So, you know, it wasn't very difficult for me. All that stuff was really second nature for me. And kind of because I was drilled so hard as a child, music has never been difficult for me to learn. Mm -hmm. Just because you have that skeletal structure. Yeah, and it, beca it, it, you know, and it was built into me so early. Right. Like, I, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't play piano. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember what age I started playing piano. With all that training, and it must feel like hard work at a certain point, what was the music that inspired you to actually consider music fun? Or was or was the training fun? I mean, it sounds brutal, but I mean... No, it wasn't fun at all. It wasn't fun at all. Yeah, okay. And, <laughs> so what made music fun for you? Well, see, the thing, that's interesting because at Interlochen, they have different tracks. They have like, you know, the Camp for Little Kids. Mm. And then when you get to be a teenager, they have another track. Then they have like a college type area. And I basically, after being a little kid, I was like, I'm not going to this camp anymore. You know, I told my parents, I don't want to go to this camp anymore. And they said, okay, that's fine, whatever. And I kept taking piano lessons during my childhood. But when I turned about like 16 or 17, I was just like, you know what? I don't even want to play piano anymore because it just wasn't fun for me and it wasn't enjoyable for me. Yeah. And I just, at that point, I just quit playing music, period, completely. And I just listen to music, you know? I mean, I really enjoyed music a lot. It's a weird thing because there's not, like, how do I put this? There's definitely different types of music that I liked. Yeah. But there wasn't, like, one set type of music that I was like, oh, my God, this is mm. the best. You didn't really gravitate towards anything in particular. I liked everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was going to U of M for a while, and I remember they had... <laughs> They actually have a department that's called ethnomusicology, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I ended up taking a bunch of classes in ethnomusicology because the first one was Caribbean music, and I was like, for a little mm. while, I was like, oh, I really like ska and like Rocksteady and all this stuff, yeah. and it's a really great class because it's like a history of how music developed in Jamaica, you know, from mm -hmm. the beginning to now. What it is is you go and you listen to music. And you learn about the culture and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you write papers on it. And I was like, this is the best class ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I kept taking classes like that, you know what I mean? And they had, like, lots and lots and lots of different classes like that. And most of them were, like, soul-based or, like, they had one on rap that was really great. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, like, when I was in high school, I, like, hung out with all the punk rockers and stuff. So I got really into punk, of course, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. I really like music, but I didn't really want to necessarily play it. And I think that this is probably a thing from my generation, I didn't pick up a guitar, and I didn't, at that point in my life, I didn't feel like, oh, I should learn how to play guitar. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I played piano, and I felt like, oh, well, there's no room for piano in rock and roll without me being like, you know what I mean? Like Jerry Lee Lewis or something like that. Somewhere Billy Joel is crying, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be Billy Joel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And yeah, so I just kind of felt like, well, you know, I can just be really observant and appreciate 
music for what it is. Yeah. Dive into it more than the normal lay person would. So what made you pick it all back up and start playing again? I started playing a little tiny bit when I was in college because some friends of mine were in a band and they <laughs> they had a band um, called Nadsat Nation and they wanted to play this showcase thing at the U of M but none of them went to U of M except for and you know they were friends with me and they were like hey if you're in the band for this thing we can play it and I was like well all right <laughs> and they're like we just need you to play organ in the band because they had like a uh, farfisa mm. just play farfisa on a couple songs and then we can play this festival thing and I was like all right cool so I did that and I was like all right yeah I guess I could play farfisa a little bit on like or you know some organ on some stuff mm. but uh, that kind of didn't really interest me that much anymore. I didn't want to play piano. So years and years went by, and I had moved to Detroit. I started playing with a band called The Come Ons. is Pat Pantano, mm -hmm. who plays drums in the Dirt Bombs, yeah. and Deanne Ivan, who also sang with the Dirt Bombs a little bit. She and I b b both did backups for the Dirt Bombs mm -hmm. before yeah. I actually started playing with the Dirt Bombs. And um, Jim... Jim Johnson. Jim Johnson, yeah, 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 that's right. And so they said, we need a keyboard player. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll play keyboards for you guys. I don't really, really want to play keyboards, but I wanted to sort of playing a band at that point mm -hmm. basically all these people i'd met because i was working at the garden bowl mm -hmm. oh, okay so yeah i just kind of would meet people i you know i don't know i'm just kind of the person that like i can just talk to anybody like i i don't have any like inhibitions about talking to people makes me a good bartender you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah tom, tom potter we had on the show and he was uh telling some stories about uh going to the garden bowl and seeing you there and yeah that seemed like a major hub the garden bowl too oh yeah yeah it was really really great i mean that was one of the places where you know because like the gold dollar was really really great but you would go there when there were shows. Mm -hmm. But the Garden Bowl was really great because you could just go there. You know, like I worked on Sundays, Sunday nights. Like everybody mm -hmm. who worked there, you had a good night and you had like a shit night. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, you know, we'll let you work on like a Friday night, but then you also have to work Sunday night. You get the regulars on the Sunday night, and that's about it. Yeah. So, but like when I first started working on Sunday nights, it would just be me and then like nobody else. Or there would be me and then, like, a couple people who would trickle in and not tip or whatever. And I remember, like, Tom Potter, he started coming in all the time. And that was awesome because for a couple of weeks, it would just be me and him, and we would just hang out and talk all night. It would be really fun. And then, well, I'll go into that later. But anyway, so, yeah, I started playing keyboards for the come-ons, and that was, you know, it was really fun, and I really liked playing with those guys. And then Steve Shaw from the Detroit Cobras... I had met him through the Garden Bowl as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the Cobras had had sort of a like breakup kind of changing of members. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. Steve Shaw had left the band and he wanted to start a new band. And he'd said to me, I think you could play bass. And I was like, oh, really? I don't know. <laughs> he, you know, and he was like, well, if you play piano for so long, I don't see why you couldn't just try to play bass. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I should, you know, I could try. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. So I got a bass and my friend Steve Noara. Mm-hmm. Steve Noara came over one day and I was like, oh, okay, Steve, what do I do with this thing? And he was like, all right, this is the E string, blah, 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 blah. You can't ever use a pick. You can only use your fingers and find a record that you like and listen to the bass line and try to play along with it. Bye. You know, <laughs> and, you know, and, but his whole thing was like, don't ever use a pick. You can't ever use a pick. <laughs> Basically, sure. my lasting impression of Steve Noara for like bass guitar was you're not allowed to use a pick. So I, I've never to this day, I've never played anything like a guitar or bass with a pick. I just wow. I don't know how and I can't do it. Like I've tried to do it and I just I can't like I physically I'm not able to hold on to a pick. <laughs> Your nails must be like titanium or something. <laughs> I don't have nails. I, I have to like cut them down really, really short. Yeah. And like if you see pictures, oh, I should, oh gosh, I've got like really gory pictures of my my fingers. <laughs> and, oh, and it's man. disgusting. Like I'll tell, I have a story about there's, ah, oh, gosh. When I first started playing with the Dirt Bombs, I was playing bass. Like bass, bass. Mm-hmm. And I used to break strings all the time. I was like, how am I breaking strings? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. You know, like, bass mm. strings are really, really thick. Yeah. And, like, right. why am I breaking strings? And there was a show we played in, in New York at the Knitting Factory when it was still in Manhattan. And in, like, the first couple songs, I remember I broke, I think it was either the E string or the A string. I don't remember. But one of the big fat ones. Uh-huh. And I was trying to pull it off. And... It wouldn't come off, so I was like, oh, f*** it. I'll just keep playing, and I'll play the rest of the set like without that string. Uh-huh. And then I was like, God, like somebody spilled something on me, and the floor's all wet, <laughs> and this is really like, this is really annoying. <laughs> because like when you're when you're on stage, a lot of times you can't see the color red, yeah, depending on the way yeah. the lights are, you know. And so I was just like, why is everything so wet, and why is the ground all sticky and gross, and this is horrible? Oh, my God. And then God. I looked over, and at that point, Troy Gregory, he was playing, I was playing fuzz bass, I'm sorry, and Troy Gregory was playing bass bass, and he looked over at me, and he looked like he saw a ghost or something, and I was like, <laughs> what the fuck, why are you looking at me like that? And he came over, he like dropped his bass, and he ran over to me, and he like picked me up, and carried me backstage, and I was like, what's going on? 
And we got backstage, and I was just covered in blood. It's the fingers. Was, yeah, and I, I didn't know where the blood came from. And then I realized it was because I had cut my fingers open. And since uh. I'd been playing through it, I was just bleeding oh, God. profusely. Uh. <laughs> and... Uh. Uh. Oh Jesus! Yeah, it was it was really disgusting. I had blood everywhere, and our uh, our booking agent's assistant at that time, Mark Bauer, he ended up driving me to the hospital, and I had to get stitches. I had like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight stitches in my three fingers, and then they drove me, you know, and then I got back to the show, and they like just ended the show or whatever. And what is with you, dirt bombs? I swear, you break into equipment. Oh, we've got we've had gone to the hospital so many times. Like between like me and Ben, like the the whole rule is like try to hurt yourself only in foreign countries like that have like socialized health care. <laughs> Mick was telling us a story about uh, in France there was, uh, you know, explosions happening and uh, fire was breaking out and it was pouring rain and they had already destroyed all their equipment. Like, that band is the hardest I've ever heard on equipment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. I mean, like, I got to the point where I had, like, extra equipment. Because it's easy to have extra equipment here, mm-hmm. you know? Well, for me, it's difficult because the stuff I play is so weird, uh-huh. you know? Like, especially now, because I play that Fender Jaguar baritone, mm. and it's not like you can just borrow one from the, uh, the opening band or something like that, you know what I mean? So you always have to have, like, an extra one or whatever, and... Even when I was just playing bass, it was difficult for me because, you know, borrowing a bass from another band, I always played short scale and playing a long scale bass for me, I'm tiny, you know, I'm like five one and playing a long scale bass for me is like, it looks ridiculous. You know, like I look like, like a baby, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks so, so, so dumb, you know? So I kind of try to always have extra equipment like here and there's extra stuff I have in the UK that's sitting in our old tour manager's Man. parents' garage, you know? <laughs> you need a double neck bass and just play one or the other, depending on which one you break that night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, back to the story of how I got to play bass. So, yeah, Steve Nawara taught me, like, never play with a pick. So I never played with a pick. And I started playing bass for Steve Shaw's new band called The Breakdowns. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was um, Steve Shaw and Jeff Meyer, who are from the Detroit Cobras. played drums i played bass and then virginia benson she was singing and she had been married to the guy who ran kill all rock stars 
Mm-hmm. So we had a single that came out on that label. Come Ons and the Breakdowns. Yeah. It was a weird thing because both those bands kind of broke down (laughs) Um, at the same time. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, the Come Ons, you know, they continued to play without me, but I couldn't continue playing with them because I couldn't really play organ anymore. I couldn't see myself Mm -hmm. playing piano anymore. Mm -hmm. And then the Breakdowns, I think... Jeff and Steve still had some problems from the Cobras or something. I'm not really sure. I don't really remember how it went. But that band broke up, and I was kind of like, well, okay, I'm done with bands. You know, like, bands are horrible. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've got all these warring personalities, and it's a big pain in the ass. I'm done, you know? Right. And this is all around the 99-2000 time frame, right? Sort of net region? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) You would know better than me. I don't really... I'm not good at dates. The person who is the best with dates would be Ben Blackwell. Yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. (laughs) He knows everything, like, when everything happened. (laughs) I'm just like, I don't know, that was... At some point, at some time, at some place, I think we were in this place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but our sweet baby boy, Ben Blackwell, he remembers all. Uh, Yeah, yeah, he remembers it all. I don't remember anything. (laughs) I just remember things happening. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I just at that point was like, you know, I'm done. I'm done playing in bands. It's, you know, it's a pain in the butt. And I can't deal with all these personalities, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. people just get... In arguments all the time, and I'm, yeah. it's too difficult for me. Because I've obviously just been brought up playing by myself, piano, alone. And at first it was really fun. I was like, wow, practicing is great. You have all these people you can talk to. You're not sitting in, in a room by yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. But then as you know, things wore on, I was like, wow, everybody argues and blah, 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 blah. This is horrible. Right. Yeah, it's like having a bunch of different relationships all happening at the same time. Exactly. You're like, it's yeah, That's you're it. basically like, yeah, it's like having four boyfriends or four girlfriends <laughs> that you don't actually sleep with, you know. You know, and you're like, oh, yeah. wait a minute. 
<laughs> well, you sleep with them in a tour bus, like just like yeah. platonically. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they carry you off the stage while you're gushing blood. Right. But other yeah. than that, really, yeah, who needs them? <laughs> and sometimes you sleep in like the same bed with them at the Motel Six or something. <laughs> but you know, but <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so at that point, I was just like, I'm done. I'm done with bands. I'm just gonna keep bartending and figure out what else I'm gonna do with my life. I have no idea. And mm. right around that time, Jack White was doing that Sympathetic Sounds of Detroit album. Yeah. And how did this happen? Oh, oh I know. Okay. Because the breakdowns, that single that we did, we'd done a couple songs for that. Mm-hmm. And I'd done an album with the Come Ons, and we did a single where I sang the B-side which was a cover of uh, The Velvet's Needle in a Haystack. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that record came out on Sympathy for the Record Industry, yeah. like everything else in Detroit at that time. Right. <laughs> it seems that way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, long, long Gone was really pillaging. <laughs> yeah. At that point, yeah, Jack was doing the Sympathetic Sounds of Detroit, and Long Gone heard, he was like, oh, Coe's out of a band right now. And he had reached out to Jack and was like, you should see if Coe's got another band and she wants to be on the compilation. And so Jack reached out to me, and he was like, hey, do you want to be on this compilation that I'm doing? And I was like, um, I guess so. Um, you know, I just got to figure some stuff out, because at that time I didn't have a band or any songs or anything, you know? When we talked to Tom, uh-huh. he was telling us that the vibe was like, ooh, this thing might get some real ears on it kind of thing. Did you not share that same sort of like hey, this could be like a big deal, like I could really use this. Or was it, to you, it sounds like it was more like, yeah, I guess I'll be on that. Yeah, for me, it was like, I guess I'll be on that because I wasn't really, you know. (laughs) That's great. I I was in a completely different situation than, say, Tom was, you know, because Tom had been plugging away with Bantam Rooster and the Dirt Bombs for a long time, especially Bantam Rooster. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to remember that at that point, Bantam Rooster, they're the ones that got Dave Kaplan, our booking agent, who used to book the White Stripes and everybody. They're the ones that got him as a booking agent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were one of the first bands that were out there touring, you know? Yeah. So he probably saw it as like, yeah, this is an awesome opportunity. Whereas I was just like, "Uh, all right, whatever, cool, you know, like, (laughs) sure, why not? I'll do this song. Yeah. I I got, I have nothing better to do, you know? And um, so, you know, I I said yes to Jack, and then I kind of was like, all right, I guess I have to figure this out now. (laughs) And then he told me, he was like, oh, by the way, we have to get this done, like, really, really soon, like, within the next, like, (laughs) week. And I was like... That tracks. All that tracks. Yeah, I was like, oh, (laughs) shit. You know, because I didn't have a band, I didn't have any songs. Yeah. I didn't have anything, you know? I was just like, (laughs) uh... What do I do? You know, like, right, right. I didn't really want to get any of the other bands to back me or, you know, this or that. I just, I, I, yeah, I was just like, I don't know really what to do here. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. So I ended up getting Steve Nawara, mm. who taught me how to play bass, sort of, and Jeff Klein, who was the drummer from The Breakdowns. Mm-hmm. And I sat down one day and I wrote the music to Black and Blue. Yeah. And I told Steve Norm, like, I don't know, you do the guitar part, whatever, figure out, you know. (laughs) 
remember going over to Jack's house, and he was like, "Okay." And so we, we, you know, we laid down all the basic tracks, and he was like, "All right, you know, do you want to do like overdubs or do you want to do vocals?" And I was like, "Everything else, because I don't have any words yet." You know. <laughs> <laughs> so you just made it up on the spot. That's wild. I had some ideas of like, you know, like I had like the chorus in mind, but I didn't have like most of the verses, you know. So I'm like downstairs, like, feverishly trying to write verses. Like yeah. I had some ideas of like certain words and stuff like that but not a full idea of like i didn't have most of the verses completed yeah. you know because, because i didn't have a band or anything you know i didn't i didn't have anything yeah so yeah so i did that and i was like all right cool was steve still with the wild bunch at that point i think so okay i believe he still was the one thing we hear a lot is like there's so many people like even yourself a moment ago like People are in so many different bands at the yeah. same time. Sometimes it's hard for us to keep track of who's where. <laughs> yeah. I actually, at one point, doing merch for the White Stripes, I was talking to Meg. And we tried to do it at one point, one night. We were like, all right, we're going to, you know, you know how they have that book of like rock family trees? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that book? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We were like, we should do one for Detroit and have it start out with the Gories, you know? <laughs> and yeah. Because, you know, you can kind of start everything out with the Gories. Right. right. And um, it was really late and we, we didn't get very far. But like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy because everybody at that point was in like at least two different bands. And it wasn't a weird thing if you had to play two shows in one night, you know, at all. Mm. Right. You know, and it was just a matter of like, oh, shit, like I have to play this show in Ferndale, which is like suburban Detroit. And then I have to yeah. play one in Detroit. Oh, my God. How am I going to get there? You know, that kind of thing. Right. But it, what, that wasn't a weird thing at all. Would the acorn that spawned the family tree be the Stooges? <laughs> <laughs> you and Meg both were working at the Garden Bowl, right? It, wasn't she? She tended bar there, too, no? No. She bartended at this bar in Royal Oak that was like Memphis Smoke or something like that. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So Black and Blue, so you're you're getting the track together. Yeah. Working on the lyrics. You get, you're getting a band together. It sounds like a band is starting to coalesce here. Yeah. We get the track done, and I'm just like, okay, cool. You know, got this song on this record. Yep. It's pretty cool because every other band on the record is an actual band and Mm -hmm. at that point in time detroit was like the cool thing you know (laughs) they had like enemy and all these like british magazines coming over and everybody was super psyched about detroit so it's kind of like well that's cool i'm on this record along with like all these other super great detroit bands Mm -hmm. but you know i didn't really have a band i just had that one song you know, and I was like, oh, I'll just be co in the knockouts because Kate, everyone, right. you know, if I like go out to eat or something or go someplace and I'd be like, oh, my name's co and or write it down on a piece of paper. People always be like, K.O. And like in boxing, <laughs> it's a knockout. So I was like, oh, I'll just do that. Whatever, you know. Yeah. And then after the record came out, Long Gone John was like, hey, do you want to just do a full length record? And I was like, uh, Okay. <laughs> I guess so. You know, I mean, I know this sounds like really ridiculous, but like, you know, I I didn't really expect anything from it. I just kind of was like, all right, cool. Sure. Why not? I just love that all your like major musical journeys begin with. Yeah. All right. I guess. (laughs) Well, this, this, this is what I'm getting at. Like my whole life, not my whole life, but a lot of these things in my life have been like. Uh, okay, cool, I guess so. You know what I mean? Like, they're not things that I've, like, 
actively pursued. Like I've been like, all right, <laughs> I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it. You know, it's stuff that I've kind of been like, all right, this is really cool. Yeah. But I don't really, you know, I've never really chased after it. But then I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll try it. And it kind of works out. Yeah. And it's partially, I think, luck. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that I played a whole lot of music when I was young, you know, a whole lot of music. So it's not like I was just completely lucky. For instance, Dave Buick and I, we both started playing bass at about the same time. Italy Records founder Dave Buick, for those of you listening at home. (laughs) And I remember he was like playing Ramon songs Mm -hmm. and I was playing like Motown songs, you know, and it wasn't like a thing where it was like oh because dave sucks but it's just because like i had like prior musical training yeah you know i had like 17 years of musical training and a lot of it was like intense musical training i mean really that piano with some work i could just play anything after that you know what i mean yeah it's interesting you mentioned motown because i get a lot of motown vibe from the kona knockouts release uh the the self-titled album yeah like just just listening to that Obviously, there's the you, cover. You play with genre, <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. But the, you play with genre on it a little bit. But even in the punkier sounding kind of stuff, there is that melodic kind of like. I think that's just in the DNA of Detroit at a certain point too. Yeah. But like, I was getting a lot of that in there. It may have been even in, even in the vocal style. kind of like what I've always wanted to do, you know what I mean? Like, I never thought of myself as a lead singer. Yeah. I've always thought of myself as a backup singer, sort of, because when I was Mm -hmm. growing up and I would sing in, like, choirs and stuff like that, when I got all my, like, formal, (laughs) formal classical vocal training. (laughs) um, Your perfect pitch. Yes, we heard. (laughs) (laughs) I know. God, I sound like an old asshole. (laughs) But um, my voice isn't high enough to be a soprano. Mm -hmm. Uh So, you know, there's soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Mm -hmm. So for girls, you're, you're a soprano or an alto. And my voice isn't high enough to be a soprano. Yeah. I guess I could have if I really pushed it, but it's not really in my natural range. I'm more of an alto. Mm -hmm. And if you're an alto, you always sing harmonies. You never get, like, the melodies. And so I really got used to finding harmonies in the songs. Yeah. So, like, even when I'd listen to Motown songs or anything on the radio even, I always would, like, my ear would automatically pick out the harmonies. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I just always wanted to do that was like, oh, I want to sing the harmonies. So even like the Detroit Cobras, like on uh, what record was that? Life, Love and Leaving? Yes, yes. On that record, like I came in and did a lot of the backup vocals and did a lot of the harmonies for that record. Mm -hmm. Just because it comes naturally to me. I can hear the harmonies because that's what I learned as a kid is like singing harmonies. Watch me. 
But when I was learning how to play bass, one of the things that I got was this book that's super amazing. And anybody who plays bass or has any interest in bass should get a copy of it. It's called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. I know there's a movie that's called that too, but there's a book about James Jamerson. And it comes with CDs. And it's just all of his bass lines. And it's like different Ooh. bass players playing his bass lines. Yeah. And you can like pan, you know, your stereo or whatever to hear the full tracks right. or just his bass lines. That's awesome. Yeah. So when I was learning, I was like, oh, cool. I want to learn, let's say, Bernadette, you know? And yeah. like I'm thinking, oh, yeah, Bernadette's got to be pretty easy. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, it's really fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a pitfall. A lot of people fall in with bass in general, though, is like yeah. they're in the background. It's got to be easy. And it's it's not. Yeah. I mean, and that's the whole thing. It's just that, like, I always took the route of I'm going to learn how to play bass from listening to soul records. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the first song. I learned how to play was Booker T and the MGs uh, Green Onions, which was pretty easy. Yeah, but I mean, comparatively pretty easy. Like, I never Mm. went the route of like, I'm going to learn how to play punk songs. I was always like, I am going to learn how to play soul songs because the bass lines are always seem to be more interesting. Mm -hmm. But then also, it made things hard for me because if you're a singing bass player, most of the time, if you're trying to do more soul bass lines, they're not synced up with the vocals, you know? Mm, really hard to focus, yeah. <laughs> and it's really hard to do. It's really hard to sing and play different things. That's one of the things they point to uh, with a strength of Paul McCartney's or uh, oh, yeah. John Bruce's. Is yeah. he's a, they're able to maintain that concentration, and that's just really difficult to stay in the pocket and yeah, do that. And yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, there's, like, certain songs of, like, the Beatles that, like... Because when Cone Knockout started, I started playing with Eddie Baranek, mm-hmm. who was in the band The Sights. And I'd mm-hmm. met Eddie because he was a little kid. <laughs> I think he was, like, 17 or 18 or something like that. And he was going, he was coming into the Garden Bowl all the time, and I always let him drink. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a sting operation this whole time. Yeah. Oh, you're under. Well, it's going to get even worse when I tell you the other stuff I've done. Anyway, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would always let him drink and stuff. And he and I would, you know, we were all we were both like super Beatles fans, and so we'd always like when we were writing that Cohen and Knockouts record, 
we would try to play Beatles songs, and I was like, oh, Oh Darling, I love Oh Darling. And I would try to play Oh Darling and sing it, and I'm like, oh, this is impossible. How does Paul McCartney do this? You know. And of course, I mean, yeah. he probably didn't actually play it and sing it live in the studio, you know. But it was just like, just trying to do that. Like, I was like, ah, you know, oh my God. How do you do these things? That's the stuff where you look at him on stage yeah, doing yeah. The complicated bass lines and singing. Like at the same time, it's it's less the Beatles stuff and more like Wings. Yeah, and yeah. And it's really crazy what he was able to do. Yeah, you know? I mean, people just people don't realize that being like a singing bass player is probably the hardest thing to do. Mm, yeah. There's a reason why most people who sing play like yeah. guitar. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like lead guitar. It's like, okay, it's because that that way when you're singing or you're playing, you know, your guitar, you just can just like stop playing or you just play along with whatever you're singing, you know? Right. Lean on the rhythm section. Yep, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so Long Gone John asked me to do this record and I was like, I guess so, sure, it'd be awesome, you know? Yeah. Who's gonna say no if someone offers to put out a record by them? Well, I mean, maybe to Long Gone John. <laughs> well, at that point in time, you know, he's putting out records by everyone in Detroit and... Yeah. You know, not only everyone in Detroit, and they're all doing really well, too, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everybody's, like, going on tour, everybody's doing all this stuff, and yeah. and I'm like, I might as well do it. Yeah. What the hell? Well, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, it worked out really well. James, so far in this interview, we've learned a lot of different things. Uh, we have learned that Co was part of some horrid Dickensian music camp <laughs> that I actually wound up finding videos of their advertising to the youth on the internet uh-huh. and the advertisements make it seem a little like a cult but we understand it was a music camp and clearly it did co some good here because man could she play whatever instrument she puts her mind to including but not limited to rain stick uh, she didn't deny it, Paul. She didn't deny it. Yeah, rain stick is still on the table. Yep. Triangle, still on the table. Yeah. We don't know yet if she learned how to play a tissue box guitar, which is what I learned how to play when I was her age. And <laughs> by play, I mean hit. James just damaged a piece of stationery. <laughs> yeah. I can do the little comb trick with the tissue paper. Comb makes me look so bad with this music stuff. Co also mentioned perfect pitch, which I find interesting, and I, uh, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to break this down right here. Honesty is important, Paul. My wife would be very embarrassed of me if she heard me say this, which I assure you she doesn't and can't. I don't really know what perfect pitch means. Uh, it means you can sing notes perfectly. I know people in music circles prize it very highly. How do you not know what that means? I mean, I assume to know what it means. Susanna will never know you say this. (laughs) But in like a practical sense, I guess I don't really have an idea. But apparently, Ko's got it. Very impressed with Ko. Happy about that. Perfect pitch. And she got it from this music camp here. Ko's got it. Learned it. Learned it there. The flies got it. (laughs) <laughs> Ariel's roommate in college, whomst was blind, had developed perfect pitch and uh, yeah. was a beautiful uh, singer. Well, there you go. Yeah. Speaking of beautiful singing, uh, we mentioned Ko's vocals uh, sort of briefly in the interview, but if anyone hasn't checked out Ko and the Knockouts' self-titled release or her work as a backing vocalist on the Detroit Cobras or any of her work just across any of her projects, she has the most lovely singing voice, and it's understated when it needs to be. It's never showboaty, but it's always very steady and melodic 
and as a backup singer too like she elevates whatever voice she's harmonizing with i think in a great way yeah agreed especially in her knockouts debut her singing voice really does shine through but doesn't overwhelm like it doesn't like take over it's it's the perfect complement to to the music it feels like effortless in a way which i guess on a certain point it is another really cool thing that we learned in this interview here is that meg white and co molina at one point drunkenly tried to put together a music family tree of detroit yes we did learn that yeah i would have killed to have been in the room for that one to see what those two came up with and i wonder if it is on a an overturned bar mat somewhere in the garden bowl that has yet to be discovered james and how many branches is mick collins a part of i really need to know this (laughs) is mick the tree mick might be the tree um we also dug a little bit more into the dirt bombs penchant for destruction mm. as uh co picked her fingers to death on a uh, <laughs> on a guitar to the point where they were she had to be taken to the hospital mm. before the set was over we've seen it happen to jack on stage too occasionally but it is so mind-blowing to me that people can't even notice that like she just thought there was something wet on her hand like yeah ah. Oh, the calluses. More than just wet on her hand. She was like, why am I slipping in this puddle? (laughs) Woof. That is a lot of bodily fluids. So anyway, James, lots of discussion here. Really cool stuff. And we're going to get back into it. What do you say? I can't wait, Paul. Get ready for some deep van talk. (laughs) So, yeah, I get my friend Eddie together. He and I get together. We write a bunch of songs in his parents' basement. And Eddie's like 17 or 18 at that point in time. Blackwell-esque. Yes. He actually went to the same high school as Ben Blackwell. Really? Yes. Wow. (laughs) Was there some kind of after-school program where they could come and join a band of their choosing? or? (laughs) Yeah, their after-school program was the bus would drop them off in front of the bar. (laughs) And they would get wasted. And then, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't really know. I I mean, I, I know that, you know, Eddie was in the sights and... I would just have them play in the Garden Bowl a lot, just because I liked them. You know, they, they were like little wannabe mod kids. And <laughs> at one point, I was the little wannabe mod kid. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I love these kids. All right, why not? <laughs> and Eddie's an amazing guitar player. He's really, really great. He has all the things that I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I'm super technical, mm-hmm. and he's like more soulful. Okay. And, but he, I mean, but technically, he's a wonderful guitar player. He's great. It was great writing with him because he was able to fill in all the stuff I couldn't do and all the stuff that he couldn't do, I could do, you know? Gotcha. You complimented each other. Yeah. And and so when we went went to write that record, yeah, I went to his parents' house. We sat in his basement and we kind of churned out most of that record in like two days where we just sat down and we're like, all right. I was like, so I got this record to write. And he's like, okay. Do you have any ideas? And I'm like, hmm, hmm, what do we think, you know? And we just kind of came up with, like, most of that record in two days.
and a lot of it was like you know ripped off of some uh, some songs <laughs> you know there's some songs I'm like all right I really like this song I let's write a song yeah. that's based on this song you know what I mean um, I would say reminiscent yeah, remin- yeah yeah well yeah. and that's and that was kind of the funny thing is that a bit later on in life I was having writer's block and this is you know after I had met little Steven uh-huh. I was talking to him on the phone and I was like ah I'm having writer's block right now I don't really know I can't really write music and he was like alright I'm going to fill you in on a little secret and I was like oh my god this is so awesome <laughs> you know like wear a bandana this guy's in the E Street band <laughs> he's been playing with Bruce Springsteen for years he's going to fill me on a, yeah. in on a songwriting secret and he's like take a song you like and just change it a little bit. And I was like, ah, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> I already know that one. <laughs> we don't know if it'll hold up in court, but yeah. it'll hold up on the radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. <laughs> but yeah, so we yeah we did that record, and it was like, all right, cool, we made a record. This is awesome. And I didn't really think like, oh, yeah, now we're going to be like big rock stars. Yeah. You know, or anything. It's funny, actually. We recorded it with Jim Diamond. Yeah. And his studio at the time was across the street from the baseball stadium. Mm. And one of the days we recorded NSYNC Whoa. was playing a show at Comerica Park. <laughs> and the thing was, it was really hot in the studio. I was like, can we open the windows? And But if you open the windows, like, <laughs> you could hear all everybody screaming for NSYNC. Yeah, you're like, is that is it just me or is that Joey Fatone? <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, hey Jim, can we just leave the windows open? You can hear the, keep the screaming in the background. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we kept Jeff Klein in on drums, and we had Jeff Meyer come in and play guitar a little bit with us. Yeah, but yeah, so it was kind of like we did that record with the extra money. I bought a van. Mm-hmm. Nice. Just because I was like, eh, might as well buy a van too. I knew a guy, well, this is funny, because I knew a guy who worked for this company that they converted vans into handicap vans, uh-huh. handicap yeah. shuttles, yeah. and I mm-hmm. guess right, there's right. you know, so there's some sort of Michigan law or whatever that you can only use those vans for a certain amount of miles or whatever, blah, 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 and then you have to get new ones or whatever. Right. So he would trade them in to the dealership and get new ones, or his, his the company he worked for would do that, and get a certain amount of money back for him and then buy a new one. And then he started meeting all these people in bands and realized that he could make more money by selling them to people in bands, uh-huh. you know, and then get give the money to the dealerships and buy a new van, you know? <laughs> because the trade-in value wasn't that much, you know? So I got this van, which was like a 15-passenger van, with this big, huge... It was like it had an extended cab on top. Yeah. And it had like a wheelchair lift in the back. Sure. And it had like seventy or 80,000 miles on it. An Econoline 350 or something. Yeah. You know, and he was like, I don't know, give me like $2,000. And I was like, hell yeah, you know? <laughs> and he was like, well, because if I trade it in at the dealership, they'll only give me $1,000. So I'm like, all right, mm. awesome. So this guy's side hustle was giving every single band in Detroit 
a van to drive in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at some point in 1999 to 2003, this guy had a, a van empire, and the United States <laughs> was filled with Detroit vans just shuttling yeah. back and forth, and also possibly picking up wheelchairs. We don't really know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how many people actually bought vans from him, because I know I did. I think the Von Bondis might have. No, I know the Von Bondis did. Okay. The doll rods? I don't know. I'm not sure who else did. I know that Tom Potter already had a van. Of course he did. Um, <laughs> the White Stripes already had a van. Tom uh, Potter had a van for many reasons. Yeah. We don't know all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many of these van owners were using it to shuttle kids from the high school to the bar? <laughs> How many of them were Iraqis? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that ended up being good for me was that I was able to actually rent out my van to other bands (laughs) when I I wasn't on tour. (laughs) So you had a side hustle. I always had a side hustle. (laughs) (laughs) This is a van pyramid scheme. But yeah, so I bought this van. The only thing I had to do was uh, I had my friend uh, Chris Turner, who's this really great artist here. Paint a wizard on it. Please paint a wizard on it. (laughs) No, <laughs> I wish he did, but he came over, he he has a welding setup, and he came and he took the wheelchair thing out of it, because it was like this one, you know, it was like an actual machine, you know, where it was like you push the yeah. button and it was, and it weighed like so much, it was so heavy, like at first we're like, oh, this might be cool, then we won't have to lift all the equipment, but it's a pain in the ass, you know, like it was mm. t- yeah. totally not worth it. So he just had to, like, take it out of my van, and I built, like, a little loft in it so you could, like, sleep in the van if you wanted to, and also so the uh, equipment would be more secure. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was really funny because that van actually ended up getting stolen. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. With equipment or were you able to save that? All the equipment was out of it except for Ben Blackwell's drum set. Good. Oh, God. (laughs) We had had loaded everything out of the the van except for Ben was like, I'll just come get my drum set tomorrow. Oh. And the funny thing was about it was that I didn't actually know that the van was stolen for like three days. Because I just thought that Ben had taken the van to unload his drum set. So I was like, all right, well, van's gone. Ben must have taken it. And then um, Ben, like... Not our sweet baby boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and everybody in the band had keys to the van. So I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, Ben just came and took it. So three days later, Ben's like, can I come get my drum set? And I'm like, what, you don't have the van? And he's like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. You know, so then I had to call everybody in the van, and the band was like, anybody take the van? Everyone's like, nope. I love Detroit so So then I had to file a police report, and the great part about it was they give you, like, 90 days, the cops, like, 90 Mm -hmm. days or whatever, to see see if they can find the van. Uh Uh-huh. And, of course, they never found the van. And so, like, 90 days later, the insurance company calls me, and they're like, all right, well, they never found the van, so you got to come in, and we'll cut you a check for the van. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, I'm going to get a check for, like, $500 or something. You know what I mean? And I go to the insurance place. They're writing out the check. And they're like, one, zero, 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 zero. And I'm like, what? And they cut me a check for $10,000. Oh, my God. And I was like, what do I do here? Do I say, like, is this too much? Because I don't want to, like owe them money, you know, right. when they figure out it's wrong. But at the same time, I don't want to, like, 
turn down $9,000 potentially that I think that this van is whatever. And so I actually said to the guy, I'm like, are you sure this is right? And he's like, yeah, the motor in it, the engines in it is worth blah, 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 because it's an E350 or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So this van was worth $10,000. Here's your check. And I was like, oh. holy sh**. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So long story short, you bought a fleet of vans <laughs> and a fleet of drum kits that you just shipped off to Ben. So Ben Blackle got really lucky, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I bought this van. I ended up uh, doing a little bit of touring with Co and the Knockouts. Like we did a tour with Holly Go Lightly, a couple tours with Holly Go Lightly. Yeah. The first tour we did, we went down to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, we played New Orleans and Memphis. Uh-huh. I don't remember how we got this show, but we stayed with Peg from the Gories. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. played a couple shows down in New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And I remember Eddie was 20 at the time. And I was like, oh, man, this really sucks, dude. Like, it's Mardi Gras, you're 20. Or he might have been 19. And we got to figure something out. So this is where, this is me being super illegal. (laughs) (laughs) At that point in time, Michigan had these really shitty driver's licenses or just like a piece of paper laminated with a picture, Uh you know, your picture on it. Good, yeah. And if you ran your finger over it, you could feel like an imprint of like the state of Michigan. But it was Mm -hmm. like the feeling of it was like the size of a dime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And only if you looked at it would you see that it was like the seal of Michigan or whatever. And I was like, well, if we're only going to go to bars at night, hmm. Yeah. And we're going to New Orleans, hmm. So I was like, Eddie, give me your license, you know. So I like, I made Eddie a fake ID. (laughs) 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 And to make it kind of like, so it would feel like it was legit, while the uh, lamination was still wet, I pressed a bunch of dimes into it. So it would feel like that was like, there's a seat, you know, like you could feel like. Yeah. There's something there. It vaguely feels like Roosevelt, but there's something there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it it actually totally worked. I I mean, I I told him, I was like, the only reason I'm making you this is because I don't want you to, like, have to, like, you know, like Ben Blackwell, like, when we would do Dirt Bomb stuff, there's certain venues in Seattle where they would make him sit out in the van oh, until we played the show. <laughs> poor Ben. And then somebody drove off with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so I felt bad for him, so I was like, you can't ever use this except for this Mardi Gras trip, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of Roosevelt's defining characteristics was that his head was shaped like a mitten, so <laughs> it's very yeah. good. Oh, man. <laughs> Holy cow. All all, all these terrible things I did when I was young. (laughs) (laughs) All of these terrible things that other people did, Co. Yeah, not me. Not me. Somebody else did that. (laughs) This is alleged. So, Co and the Knockouts had, I mean, your first two producers, Jack White and Jim Diamond. That's quite a one-two punch. (laughs) What were the major differences, you'd say, in approach between those two styles? It's hard for me to say because at that point in time... I didn't really have any experience with recording that much. Yeah. I didn't really know what to expect in terms of, like, production. It was just kind of like, I was like, all right, well, they just tell me what's good and what's bad. And I'm just like, okay, that sounds fine. I'll do it over if you want me to. You know what I mean? Like, I, I I didn't really know what to expect at that point in time because I was so new at recording. Uh Mm -hmm. And especially, like, with a rock and roll band. So 
I don't know. <laughs> the, the sessions struck us as kind of informal, the sympathetic sounds, because that was in Jack's house, right? Yeah. I mean, that was definitely very informal. We all used the same equipment, you know, like you, I mean, you could bring your own guitar and stuff like that. Yeah. But we all used the same amps, and it was mm-hmm. very, you know, like, okay, rolling, go. <laughs> you know, whereas, yeah. like, when we did, when I did the Conan Knockouts record, it, you know, it's more obviously we're doing a full-length record yeah. and, you know, we're doing 12 songs instead of just one, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Jim's studio approach seems a lot more traditional or at least yeah. perfectionist. His studio approach has changed over the years, you know? Like, right, when he right. did... Yeah. My Cone the Knockouts record, it was very, very, very professional. And as time went on, it was, it, you know, he, he got a little a little different later on, you know, I think. Um, as time went on, he started having recording sessions in a van that he found uh, yeah. on the side of a road. <laughs> <laughs> it had a drum kit in it already. That was the glorious part of it. Maybe he stole my van. <laughs> Maybe he stole your van. Is what we're presupposing is that Jim Diamond stole your van, maybe? Yes, because he was no longer in the band anymore. So exactly. Jim Diamond stole my van. Which, thank you, Jim, because I made $10,000 off of it. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. So let's talk about the other side of the creative endeavors you were involved with in Detroit at that time. We see your name pop up all the time in album either design or artwork contributions in some fashion. Listeners of the podcast know that uh, you took the photos that appear on the cover of the White Stripes debut album. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that side of things, the visual art medium, because obviously you're very classically trained in in, <laughs> uh, in music and you had all this experience in bands and stuff, but how did the visual art come about? Um, that's a really weird thing, too. So my uncle, when I was a little kid, uh-huh. he's like my cool uncle, you know, like mm. everybody's got like the cool uncle or cool right. whatever. <laughs> I had a cool uncle when I was a kid. And I think when I was about like eight or 10 years old, he said to me, whatever car I have, when you, you turn 16, you get to have it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, awesome, because he always had tons of cool cars. It's a good deal. Yeah, he always he had like a VW <laughs> bus for a while. Like he never had like a boring car. He always had really cool cars. Mm-hmm. But of course, mm. the year before I turned 16, he bought a Ford Escort station wagon <laughs> and drove it across the country twice and then hit a tree and then it still ran and then he gave it to me. And I was like, oh, man. Anyway. Um, wow. <laughs> it's a sturdy car. It's a very sturdy car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I ended up having that thing for a long time. The good thing about it was that it was a stick shift. So I had to Mm. learn to drive on a stick shift car, which I don't know. I think that's pretty cool because a lot of people don't know how to drive stick shifts. Yeah. Yes. And it's actually prevented me from having my car stolen a lot because I've owned a lot of stick shift cars. And (laughs) in the city of Detroit, a lot of people won't steal your car because it's a stick and they don't know how to drive it. So anyway, he dabbled in a lot of different kinds of hobbies. And sometimes after school, when I was younger, he would take me and my younger sister and we would hang out with him after school. Uh And he actually had a dark room at his house and he had all sorts of cameras and photo equipment and stuff like that. Like he actually left me like a nice Leica when he passed away. Oh, yeah. He actually taught me how to use a 35 millimeter camera. He taught me how to 
process film, develop it, and process prints when I was probably like eight, nine, ten years old or something like that. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And gave me my first 35mm camera, just like a pretty basic 35mm film camera. Mm. And I would go around and take pictures of like stuffed animals or something, you know what I mean? (laughs) And then, you know, he, he would teach me how to develop the film and and all that. So as I got older, I kind of kept up with it. Mm-hmm. I luckily went to a high school that also had a dark room. Mm-hmm. So I was able to keep doing it and yeah. get the school credit for it. And so I always kind of dabbled in photography. I never studied it in terms of like, you know, like Pat Pantano. He's far more skilled in photography than I am. And he's very well-versed in photographers and this and that. I never got that far into it. Mm -hmm. But I always, like, you know, kind of had an eye for, like, oh, this might be a cool angle or this might be interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's where that came from. Okay. Basically, is I had a really awesome uncle. (laughs) Were you ever able to have photography powwows with, with like, Pat or, or like, David Swanson or or someone like that? Because there seems to be a lot of people in the Detroit scene at the time. I I hate using the word scene. I use it every time. (laughs) Um, But there's a lot of visual arts and musical arts kind of swirling at the same time. We talked to Tom Potter was doing visual arts. Bruce Brand was doing visual arts. Oh, I love Brucey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I never considered myself very much of an artist. At one point, I was like, oh, I really, really like photography. And what I wanted to do with it was be more of like a photojournalist, mm-hmm. like go to Iraq and take pictures, you know, or, or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to take photos more of a journalistic side, more of a like, this is what's going on in the world, not from like an artistic point of view. Okay. More reportage. Yeah. Even though Pat and I spent like, actually, as of tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be my 15 year anniversary of being in the dirt bombs. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Uh, um, I think that's older than Blackwell when he joined. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. But um, Okay. Yeah, so for like being in the Dirt Bombs for 15 years, Pat and I never really talked about photography because I think we really came from a different point of view. You know, I never really looked at photography as artistic, even though I did take photos, you know, of the white stripes and photos, you know, and they were used in an artistic manner. Mm, I always took yeah. photos more as life as it's happening. You know what I mean? Does right, candidates right. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which is more interesting to me in most cases than, you know, still stagnant art yeah. like setups, like still lives. I always really, really admired what everybody else could do in terms of photography. You know, like Steve Shaw, he's a great photographer. Pat's a great photographer. I really admire what they can do. But I can't do that, and I can't. I don't see things that way. At one point, I picked up like an old eight millimeter film camera. It actually worked. I had a bunch of land cameras, and I was able to find film for those. And so I would run around and take photos with that thing. Do you have any Super Eight footage of the knockouts rolling around there? No, because <laughs> I would take Super Eight footage of other bands, mm. footage of like the White Stripes and like the Greenhorns. And then I have some footage of just, like, hanging out. I think it was, like, Meg's birthday or something, you know. (laughs) Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I just always kind of did it for, like, oh, this is just kind of fun. And just document what's going on, rather than, like, trying to shoot it from an artistic point of view. Yeah. That makes sense. It's funny you mentioned that about the slice of life style photos that you liked to take. Because even though those photos on the 
front cover of the Stripes album appear to be staged. They have an atmosphere about them that seems very, oh, I turned around the corner and boom, there they were, and I took this kind of thing. I don't know well, how you uh, caught that or if it was a conscious choice even, but uh, it has that vibe, you know? Those pictures actually, Jack definitely was like, all right, this is what I want the photos. You know, he was like, yeah. we're, we're taking the photos here. And he had known that he, you know, I had dabbled in photography, mm. and so he asked me if I would take the photos for him, and I was like, okay, sure, why not? Yeah. So he and Meg just kind of stood there, and I, you know, I shot like probably like an entire roll of photos <laughs> of them standing there from different angles. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so in one sense, they are staged. Yeah. But he's the one who did the staging. He's the one who said, like, right, I'm going to stand right. here, Meg's standing here, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I took the photos in terms of, like, okay, well, I'm going to try from this angle, this angle, this angle, this angle, this angle. It was up to you to find some life in them. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> was there any uh, striking differences between a shoot like that and something, like, because Pat Pantano did the photography for the Knockouts album cover. Yes. Pat totally just told us what to do the entire time. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is, I didn't realize until, you know, when I joined the come-ons, we had to do a bunch of photos for the first single. And E-Wolf, Pat and Deanne had asked him to take photos. And mm-hmm. E-Wolf, he did, I, I think, for a job for a while, he was a portrait photographer. Mm. Yeah. And so when we sat down for him, he said to me, he was like, all right, Co, everybody has a good side. And you have to, like, make sure that you lift your head like this, your chin like this. And, you know, this and this and this and, like, kind of taught me how to, like, pose for photos. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds really weird. And it was, like, the first time I'd really done, like, posed photos or whatever before. And so I just, from then on, I just did that. Whenever anybody, anybody would take pictures of me, I'd just be like, okay. Here's my good side, and this, and this, and this, and this, you know? Right. <laughs> and so I'm, I, I'm always very conscious of that. And it's funny because later on, <laughs> we did like a tour with Kelly Stoltz, and those guys would always make fun of me because when you see pictures of me standing with the band, I always kind of have the same stance where I have like my toes like yeah <laughs> like you know like <laughs> yeah, pointed inwards yeah, 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 and no, like my exactly. head's tilted because that's like my good like that's a good I don't know that's like kind of what evil had said like this is your good side this is like the way you should stand so I always stand like that no matter what you know <laughs> another mystery solved here on the program <laughs> I always stand like that. And it's it's really funny because, yeah, the guys in the Kelly Stoltz band would always make fun of me. They'd be like, this is the co-stance. This is how co-stands, you know. And it's totally it's true. I always stand like that. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, <laughs> we did a Dirt Bob show, and I was looking for photos to post uh, in the Facebook group. And everyone, everyone I was like, oh. There she is. I was beginning to think perhaps you were a cardboard cutout. <laughs> no, yeah, every single photo, I'm like, all right, Evil says to stand like this, and that's my good side, and that's where I'm going to look nice, yeah. you know. And it's it's uh, it is a very rock star stance, though. I gotta say, yeah. it's very rock star. Thanks. Yeah. I wish I had a rock star stance. I don't have any. I, I'm in a constant state of schlub. Well, you know, it's not hard to get a rock star stance. You just got to have somebody teach it to you. Mm. Oh, you got to make the schlub work for you, Paul. Co, today, live on the show, you're teaching us both how to rock star stance. I'm going to try a couple different ones out. How about this? 
It's not good, Paul. You got to turn your face. Right. You got to turn your head. You can never yeah. look straight on. Turn you the head. Kind of like turn your head a little bit. Mm. Lift your chin up a little bit. Look wistfully <laughs> out into what you think should be an ocean, <laughs> and you'll you'll get there. This is a really quick tangent. Mm-hmm. Patrick Keeler did the layout and design for that. How did he yeah. get involved? I had met the Greenhorns because the first time they played up in Detroit, they opened up for the Henchmen, mm. and I had met the Henchmen when I was still in high school, maybe like the last year of high school. Uh-huh. I grew up in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. college town, and what would happen is that, you know, all of these college students, they would rent houses for the year, but then during the summer, they'd go home or go wherever, yeah. you know, so they would try to sublet their houses, mm-hmm. and so during the summer, I would try to find a sublet for pretty cheap and live, like, mm-hmm. downtown in Ann Arbor, and so one year, I had a house with a bunch of, like, my punk friends or whatever, and we lived yeah. down the street from the henchmen. Like, as a band? Like, they were... Yeah, they had, like, the hench house. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. So I had known them for a long time, and the Greenhorns opened up a show for them years and years later at the Gold Dollar, and I really, really liked them as a band, and I became really good friends with them, Patrick in particular, Mm -hmm. and he did a lot of graphic art design and layout, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm terrible at things like band names, song names, layout, I'm just... I'm not good at stuff like that. You know, I'm kind of like, whatever. <laughs> and so when it came time to actually, like, we had the record all done. We had photos taken. I was just like, I don't really know what else to do at this point in terms of layout. And Patrick was like, well, just send me whatever you have and I'll put something together. Mm-hmm. And then he did it. Good guy, Patrick. Yeah. Yay, Patrick. Yeah. But then it was kind of weird because um, later on, Long Gone John sold my record to little steven and i was working it for little steven at the time and i was on tour and little steven said i'm gonna re-release your record and i was like okay that's awesome <laughs> wow but he redid all the artwork ah, and that explains that okay yeah, <laughs> yeah he had someone redo all the artwork and uh he had asked me he had said like well you know i want to make it different than the original artwork because i want people who've already bought it to buy it again blah 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 so what can we do to make it different? And he was like, can you handwrite all the lyrics? And I was like, ooh, that's cool. Yeah, I can do that, you know. So that was okay with me. But then the rest of it, he just kind of had whoever was graphic doing his graphic design at the time do. And it just kind of went out. And <sighs> it's not necessarily what I would have done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would have uh, probably gone back to Patrick and had him do something different than what he did on the first record but like what he did on the first record right i mean i think he's still doing artwork to this day pat i mean so 
I'm sure yeah. he would have. That's so sad. I wish he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both covers are great. Yeah. But I do prefer yeah. Patrick's Yeah. But, I mean, version, to me, but... I'm happy about it either way because it got re-released, you know? Yeah. Um, it didn't die at sympathy. Yeah. Did you and the Greenhorns do a lot of commingling? I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like, uh, do you guys team up often? Um, we hung out a lot as, like, friends and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We didn't ever do anything musically, I don't think. They were like kind of adopted Detroiters. Mm-hmm. Um, that always confuses me because they seem to be there an awful lot, but they're from Cincinnati. Cincinnati, yeah. That's right. But we, okay. you know, yeah. but yeah, like I, I love them, and I would have them like if it was my birthday or something, and I'd be like, "You guys got to come up here and play for my birthday," you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, they would just come up here and play all the time because. They were just kind of like an adopted yeah. Detroit band. I have to ask, did you ever witness Little Jack Lawrence and Meg White ever have a conversation together? Because I would pay real money to see who could quiet talk the other one <laughs> into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, of course I've seen them. I saw them have a conversation. <laughs> Both of them are more talkative than you would think. Really? Um, well, in certain situations, yeah, you'd have to get to know them better and mm-hmm. maybe get them both liquored up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, we were told Meg holds her liquor very well, more than most, oh, so yeah. I don't know. By Tom, oh, yeah. specifically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that brings me on to Detroit music in general. What was it like being in a female-led group in Detroit at the time? Because it was mostly male-dominated bands going around, but with you guys, Co and the Knockouts, the Demolition Doll Rods. Wendy Case, the, the yeah. K-backs. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, is I made a conscious effort. I never wanted to be in a girl band, you know, like where everybody else in the band was girls. Mm-hmm. Because my whole thing is that like, no one has ever been like, oh, the Rolling Stones, they're all guys, and they're a really good band. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, never, no one ever says that. But any band that's all females, like, let's say, the Go-Go's, or the Bangles, or whoever else, mm-hmm. you know, that's the first thing they say. Who have still got it, by the way. The Bangles have still got <laughs> yeah. it. I saw them last weekend. They're tremendous. Anyway, continue. But you know what I mean? But, like, that's the first thing that people say. It's like, this band, they're all girls, and they're really good. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that I wanted to avoid, was being labeled as a girl. But really good right coming back to one thing that i actually mentioned way 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 before that i forgot to come back to was that when i was growing up a lot of girls didn't pick up guitars or drums or whatever at the same age as guys did Mm. like a lot of guys would pick them up a lot earlier and so it might have been more daunting to them to pick up a guitar or a bass or something mm. later on in life and think like, oh, I can't right. be as good as so-and-so or, yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. And for me, I mean, I did, of course, have that kind of thought in my mind, you know, like I have to work really hard to be this good and this and this, this good and this good. But I also had like a little bit of an ego <laughs> because I had a lot of... of classical musical training and i was like if i can play all three movements of the moonlight sonata by beethoven dude i can play you know i can i can play the bass guitar yeah Yeah. (laughs) so it's just one of those things where i kind of feel like there was a lot of girls around on the detroit scene or whatever but i feel like a lot of them either didn't feel like they could pick up instruments Mm -hmm. or they didn't get spotlighted as much, Mm. you know, until 
after like the huge Detroit thing blew up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, and you were blazing a lot of that trail, I'm sure, for people who were looking to you as an example for that. I mean, you hear a lot of stories about how like the Wilson sisters in Hart and later on, you know, like all it takes sometimes is a, a little girl to have a role model of seeing a, a woman doing that to succeed or to feel like they can. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, but that's kind of like when we talk about this whole thing about me being really nonchalant about like, oh, Blanc on John wants to put out a record. Sure. Why not? Right. And obviously all these things happened. And yeah, I'm very nonchalant about it. But of course, after the fact, I thought about things like that. Right. And I didn't really ever think I was going to be, like, a huge rock star. But one of the things that I thought about was, you know, what would be really cool is if somebody would pick up my record or somebody would listen to me or come across my record or something I've done, and it would be, like, one of the records that would lead them off the trail of, like, Top 40 radio that would make Mm -hmm. them say, like, oh, what else is out there besides what's being played on the radio all the time? Sure. You know? Yeah. There was a moment in my life where I didn't realize that world existed. And yeah, it has broadened since then. Yeah, you always find like there's a record or two that you go like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then that opens up an entire new world where you're like, wait a minute, that music was inspired by this music, which was inspired by this and this and this. And all of a sudden you're like, holy shit. You know what I mean? (laughs) So if I can be, like, one of those records that can open up one of those avenues, then I'm just happy. You know, that's 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 good enough for me. <laughs> that is a wonderful sentiment, I think, to leave that particular portion of the conversation behind. We want to thank you. You've joined us for so long tonight. We really appreciate it. This is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. No problem. We really, really appreciate it. I wanted to just touch on what you're doing now. And uh, you mentioned Stephen Van Zandt earlier in the conversation. Can you tell the listeners what you're up to these days with the Comalina program and Stephen's Underground Garage and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. So. So in between while I was touring with Cohen the Knockouts and the Dirt Bombs, because I got asked to fill in for Jim Diamond at one point and then fill in for Tom Potter, crazy weird stories. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so basically, I was kind of in the Dirt Bombs. I couldn't wait. I have to admit, there was a moment there where um, I was dancing around, and I knew they were, the camera was going to be focused on my ass, and I could not wait. I had to see it, you know. And I... <laughs> and doing Kona knockouts, and 
just basically on tour like all the time. Sure. And at one point when I was not on tour, I got contacted by little Steven. And it was kind of a weird thing because, first of all, I thought it was a joke. (laughs) And he had called me up and he said, I'm starting up a new radio station on satellite radio. And I want to know if you would like to be a host. And I kind of laughed, and I was like, yeah, no thanks, that's cool, you know? <laughs> Once again, you're well, like, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, and that one, that one was sort of a hard no for me, because I had never done radio before, mm. and I had listened to my singing voice before, which was hard enough to get used to, but speaking voice is a whole other thing, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then he was like, hey, I'm going to fly you out to New York for a week, and we'll just try it. There's no harm in trying. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. So I went out to New York, and he put me up in this nice hotel. And then every day I would go into the studio in his office. And this is crazy because his office, crazy, weird, small world. The first day I go to his office, and I get in the elevator, and this guy's like, hey, can you hold the elevator for me? And I'm like, sure. And this guy gets in the elevator, and I'm like, huh. This guy looks just like Method Man. What up, Doc? I'm like, oh, but there's no way it's Method Man, you know, but oh, whatever. <laughs> so he stops at the floor right underneath me, like the fifth floor. And then I get off on the sixth floor. And so then, you know, I'm talking to my producer, who I just met that day, this kid named Dennis, who I love, love, love. He was my producer for many, many years. And I was saying to him, like, oh, yeah, I met this guy in the elevator. It looks just like Method Man. He's like, yeah, probably because it was Method Man. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my you, God. What are you talking about? And he's like, oh, yeah, Wu Tang headquarters are on the fifth floor. It was over your head all day, every day. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, that's where ODB died. Like, you know, like, and I was like, oh my God, you know, anyway. But so, you know, we, we, we did a couple sessions where I did some voice tracks and yeah, like crazy stuff like this was happening to me in New York, you know, like, so yeah, I'm doing these voice tracks and I'm just like, ah, I've never done radio before. I would do a day of radio tracks and then Steven would sit there and talk to me about music and he'd always ask me to bring records with me to New York so I'd always pack, like, a couple of days' worth of clothes or whatever, and then, like, tons of records. Yeah. And we would mm. sit around and listen to music. It was great, you know? It was just, like, super fun. Like, dude, I'm sitting with little Steven Van Zandt from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band listening mm-hmm. to records. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's like, awesome. what the f*** kind of world is this, you know? <laughs> and um, And then I'd go home, back to the hotel, and I'd listen to, like, these CDs of my voice tracks, and it would be, like... Hi, this is, and I'd be like, oh God, my voice sounds awful. And I couldn't listen to it. You know, it would take me like two hours to listen to a minute of myself talking. That went on for like a week, and then I would go home. And I'd be home for a week, and I'd be like, oh God, this is terrible. I can't do this job. And then he would call me at the end of the week and say, like, hey, do you want to fly back out to New York again and try it? And I'd say, well, okay, I guess it's a free trip to New York. Okay, why not? So I'd go back to New York the next week. And uh, the next week, I remember um, I got picked up in the hotel. And it was, like, later in the evening or whatever. 
And Stephen was like, oh, we're going to go out to dinner. And I'm like, okay, cool. Sure. That sounds great. And he's like, we're going to pick up Andrew first. I'm like, okay, I don't know who Andrew is, you know. Sure, why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we stop at this hotel, and this guy comes out. And it's Andrew Luke Oldham, you know? Wow. And I'm like, uh, (laughs) what? You know, and he's just, like, talking about the Rolling Stones and, like, telling me all these stories about, like, you know, the early lives of the Rolling Stones. I'm like, crazy. all right, this is really (laughs) fucking crazy, but this is not helping me because it's, like, all the people that Steven had as... DJs on his roster were like real people, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he had Joan Jett and like Handsome Dick Manitoba and, you know, Andrew Lou Goldham and Kim Fowley, like all these people who had actually done things with their lives. And I was like, <laughs> I haven't done shit compared to these people. <laughs> you know, I put out this one record by myself and then I'm touring with this band, The Dirt Bombs, that some people have heard of, maybe not a lot. And I got really bummed out. <laughs> you know, I know that sounds oh, ridiculous, no. but I got really bummed out. And uh, like ne- the next day, I went to the studio and I'm like doing my voice tracks. And Stephen got a call and he's like, "I need to take this call." And I've been having problems with my wrist, like from playing so much. Like I had carpal tunnel. Mm. I don't know. My wrist was hurting really bad, and I was talking to Stephen about it earlier. So I went up on the roof to like have a cigarette or something. And I came back down like 15 minutes later, and he said, all right, you ready to record? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, and I'm just feeling bad about all this. And he said, well, by the way, Pete Townsend says <laughs> to lower your strap like half an inch, and that will help your carpal tunnel. And <laughs> oh, I'm my like, God. oh, my God. Oh, my God. Somebody, you're talking to Pete Townsend about me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, this still doesn't make me feel any better because I'm still sort of like... I do not deserve this. It's a common thing that artists get. I think it's called like imposter syndrome. Totally, totally. You feel like you're not supposed to be getting whatever attention or whatever you're getting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So I went home back to the hotel that night and my friend uh, Nick who plays in the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, he's DJing somewhere downtown in Manhattan. And he was like, why don't you come down and hang out with me? So I was like, all right, I'm going to go hang out with Nick Zinner. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to go back up to little Steven and just give him a definitive no, because he's just kind of wasting his time and money on me. Like, he could get somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I get down to the place where Nick is DJing, and it's just, like, packed full of people. I say hi to Nick, and then there's a bunch of people, and I'm like, well, this is kind of stupid, because I can't really hang out with Nick. There's tons of people, and I don't know anybody here. And little Steven calls my cell phone, and I'm like all right, well, I'll talk to old Steven. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, where are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm at this place, and my friend Nick from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs is DJing, and he's like, oh, I'll come meet you. And I was like, all right, well, I'll see if I can put you on the guest list. And so he's like, don't worry about it. I'll be down there in a few. <laughs> and I don't even know why I was thinking, like, I need to put little Steven on the guest list. You know what I mean? Like, he's on the Sopranos at that time, of you know, yeah. you know like he's an East Street band. So he shows up, and of course, they just let him in immediately. And we sat down, and we had this long talk. And I said to him at that point, I was like, I can't do this. I don't want to waste your time and money anymore. You should find somebody else. And he was like, number one, God forbid you're 40 years old, and your bands don't go anywhere. This will always be a really great backup job. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I guess that's true. But that doesn't help with the fact that I don't think I can do this job. And he's like, number two, I've been in like town cars and walked down the street with you and had dinners with you. 
and you can talk to anybody. You've talked to all these waiters, you talk to the bus boys, you talk to all the drivers. You've got this personality that just shines through. And all you need to do is get some confidence in yourself and it'll shine through the radio. And I was like, huh. Okay. (laughs) So basically, you know, he talked me into taking the job. And ever since then, I've been doing this show for him on Sirius XM, which is on Saturday mornings now from 8 a.m. until noon. Sirius XM 21, Little Steven's Underground Garage. We will provide links to that. We encourage all our listeners to check it out. We will be checking it out ourselves. I know XM is a wall for some, but I'm dying to check this out and listen to it. Not only have you talked to busboys and waiters and all that stuff, but you've been so gracious <laughs> to talk to us tonight. We can do a part two if you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, Please, yes. Thank you again. I really, I can't thank you enough. Oh, no, thank you. And we would love to do a part two if you want to come on and join us to talk more about, like, I know we didn't even get to the dirt bombs, really. We would love to. I know. Yeah, there was a Ben Blackwell story that we did. Oh, God, yeah. You guys will love the dirt bombs, how I started playing with the dirt (laughs) bomb story. We got to learn about Bruce Brand. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll schedule a part two soon. (laughs) Thank you so much, Co. Thank you. James, we'll get, uh, let's get back to the show here. What do you say? Yeah, let's get back. All right, bye, guys. What a night. What a return, James. This is our grand return. Yes. And we've done so in fine, long-winded form. As we usually do, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a journey, James, not a race. And I think we made it into... A race. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a journey race for us. Paul, in long-winded fashion, we've returned. (laughs) <laughs> welcome back, Paul. Welcome back, world. Welcome back, Cotter. And we'd also like to give some shout outs in, in welcome back fashion. Yeah, that was close. I think we've both forgotten how to do this podcast. Yeah. Since we've been away. We'll shake the rust off. It's okay. We'd like to give some shout outs to some people who have recently liked and commented all over our Facebook page. All over it. Yeah, all over. Such as Logan Lachance. Thank you very much. Charme. Gemperoso Lake, thank you very much. Tov Valka, thank you very much. Marvin Abba. Abba. <laughs> Marvin Abba. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you to Jillian Heffer and Phil Cotter. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to. Thank you, uh, Mr. Cotter. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Cotter. Do you ever think Tom Potter was approached by people and was like, welcome back, Potter, and they did the Horshack voice to him? I can't believe that's ever happened, Paul. I don't... James, do you regret not doing the Horshack voice to Tom Potter? Uh, I'm going to say yes, because I do, and I also am going to say let's get him back on the show so I could just do that. To say welcome back, Mr. Potter? We didn't do a Harry Potter thing. I think that's far more likely... Um, Uh. And uh, I'm glad we didn't. You we shall did. not pass, Mr. That's, Potter. That's the one. That's the wizard uh, himself. I am your daddy. Uh, Mr. Sly and the family Slytherin. Oof. Man, we're really off the rails here. This The yeah. rust is just... We need Jeremy Riles. We've got to get us back oh, on. Oh, he's got to get us back on those rails. 
Woof. What, what, um, what are we even doing? We got to get him to talk about the Seeger <laughs> Liberation Army, too, um, which Co is a part of. Where are we right now, Paul? We're in the shout-outs, I think. Uh, yeah. Thanks thanks to Johnny Misner. Thanks to Kelly O'Donnell. Thanks to Louisa Padilla-Zazueta. Juliet Tower, thank you so much. Mike Jesitis mentioned us in a comment, so I'm going to thank him. Oh. And uh, you know what? Thank you to Pang Bada Bing. <laughs> James, all those people we really appreciate, and we would also like to give shout-outs to our regular listeners to the program, those who are with us week in, week out. We have the Brett 3 killed Mike Garski. I'm hoping we pronounced that correctly. It doesn't matter at this point, Paul. We're too far gone. Okay. There's no right opinion for you here. Go away. Mm-hmm. We have Brian Walter be nicer to me. I'm trying to remember all these, James. I've been gone so long. Brendan Smith. Yvette Wilkins on Sunshine. We've got The Unknown, S.A. Franco. We've got David Poe. We've got Eric Andrew Dotson over here. We've got the many laughs of LOL 2.0, The Heart of the Operation, Amy Hart, The Red Red Rain, Prosper. Our third woman in spirit every week, Kelly Durga. Eileen, we see you over there, Corsano. We've got Andre Ice Gold Lyman. We've got Mayo Me, it's Mio Mai. Jeremy Riles keeping us on the rails. Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation, and Ben, the beer man, Blues Carnes. Boy, that list is long, huh? It's pretty long, Paul. So many people who have supported our show, and these are but a smattering. They are smattering all over this podcast, and we appreciate it very much. We'll keep shouting you out. And a huge shout out. To our third woman this week, Komalina, as you heard at the end of this interview, we are going to do a part two. I mean, this is just, it's going to happen. And we're going to bring Ko back on. We had such a good time talking to Ko. I could talk to Ko just for the rest of this podcast. I, I would just turn it into a Ko podcast. But instead of doing that, you should listen to her XM shows on Little Steven's XM channel that we plugged earlier. Because that is the place to find her and more about her on uh your internet radio dials i guess yeah you have those right you dial on there i think verizon offers a dial function yeah you still dialing on james i dial on up around over james dialing in i'm dialing in there are places though james where fans of the show can interact with us oh of course they can interact with us all over the facebook facebook.com slash third men they could tweet at us at third men cast is our handle you're doing this from memory i'm doing it from memory it's dangerous i like it living on the edge new season yeah you could email us at our email there and ask us a listener question if you so desire and that would be our email third men podcast at gmail.com you can find us on our tumblr that's thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com yep oh boy i didn't ask you to do this for memory i know but i i am and that's where we're at now it's a sick challenge it's a, <laughs> it's a sadistic challenge now you can uh go to our website where we host some shows and and occasionally show notes that's the thirdmen.wordpress.com you can also find us all over that pippa that's our home channel right there is that there pippa that is sort of an explanation for what <laughs> pippa is pippa hosts our show and they do lots of wonderful things for us people out there if you're looking to start a podcast check out pippa their analytics alone are worth the investment and look podcasting is not easy or cheap 
but Pippa makes it easier and cheaper to do so. And if you do sign up, tell them that the Third Men sent you. And um, we hope to get everybody on Pippa because it's such a great service. Indeed. They're not paying us to say this. Uh, no. In fact, we're paying them to say it. So, uh, yeah. 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 No, f*** those guys. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, as as the old saying goes, Pip on down to Pippa. You're not. We're okay. making it work. You know what? All right. That's fine. Pip, pip on down to your local Pip. pip Pip shop. Pip on pip, over. How about pip, pip on, on over? Pip on over to do your pip, pip up. You know, <laughs> get on. We, we got crazy deals over there on pip on. Yep. I love this new character <laughs> for this new season. Weird it, sort of <laughs> southern. I, I pretend seat. to be an auctioneer at a local McDonald's. Pip on down to pip And you'll get yourself a big burger and go get on Pippa. He's basically Boomhauer. Boom yeah, I think I'm just doing a Boomhauer. Boom yeah. Man, if people would like to find us on YouTube, James does some really funny animations and things, and that is search the third men on YouTube. Undoubtedly, James has done some cool stuff on there uh, in our break. Let's hope. I assume. <laughs> Please also rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Or really, I mean, if there's a rate or review function wherever you listen to podcasts, do that. Please. And tell a friend about the show it helps get the word out and thank you all for supporting us we've had uh we had a record year for the show it's only getting better from here so thank you very much and do that and yeah as james mentioned you can send us a listener question we'd also like to thank sam Kubert and tom valenti for the help in the recording of our theme song we're the third men as well Susanna roundtree for the lovely intros and outros of our program indeed thank you all for bearing with us with the best ofs, hope you liked them, and uh, look forward to a great season. And as always, Paul, I will be looking for a van to live in that is ADA compliant uh, that I can make my home. Oh, okay. Well, I will be looking for a home in another extended interview coming soon. Tease, tease, tease. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at Third Men Cast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Interview with Comalina. Oh, the cat has the shit. Pixie is using her chin to open to up. Sh- Test I think good? I'm all no. good. I can see the uh, waves, and okay. uh, it's only showing my voice right now. Perfect. Nice. <laughs> Love those yeah. waveforms. I've gotten to know what all of our ums and uhs look like <laughs> waveforms. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, AOL 2.0, am I right? No. <laughs> you are wrong. <laughs> AOL 2.0. Oh. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. The rust is there, Paul. The rust is real. That's... That would sound that would sound an awful lot like a commercial. And he's like, counter offer, I don't think I could listen to you for more than 15 minutes. And I said, <laughs> okay.
Um, I believe his terminology was, if you can't tell me this in 15 minutes, I don't want to hear it. I probably should have told you it's a three, two, one, go, go. Sorry. Uh, wh- why don't we do three, two, one, go? I like. Yeah, that. perfect. Can we? Okay. All right. So we're gonna do three, okay. two, one, go. Let's start it over again. All right. Ready? Go fight eternity. Don't tell Thank you so much. I hate. To, I hate to cut this short. I might. My wife is extremely pregnant and needs to be in front of the air conditioner oh, no. here. So I have to. Oh no. <laughs> Sorry, pregnant wife. No, no, no. She's, she's fine. Okay. So now I'm painfully aware of the fact that I know exactly who she is and she doesn't know who I am at all. Well, you should you should definitely go up to her. <laughs> yeah, that, step one. Step one, go up to her. Step two, breathe uh, heavily. Step four, go like, I heard you on the internet. And step five, friendship? I, think. I guess. And then profit. Yeah. Is the last part. Step six is making out with Jesse Thorne, I think. I think that's how it ends. <laughs> the internet, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> now, what's, what's that? Okay. Are you referencing the 90s? Uh, no, I'm just being a Jimmy Glick. Um, okay. Yeah, so this thing... Um, it's it's it, it. But do that. Uh, yeah, let's count to seven. How many numbers? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can't see each other, so I'm just gonna say. I mean, I'm doing the bob if you're doing the bob, but if you're not doing the bob, I'm not doing the bob. The one that's got hot dog on it because I sing backup vocals on that. Um, Oh my god. I feel bad. Uh, Paul's Googling. Google, Google. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. And sometimes they talk back? Yeah. And it's funny, I was uh, talking about this with Tom Valente the other day. Oh, help record our theme song. Wait, call me now. He finished. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm hitting st- stop. All right, I'm hitting stop. We have a skit. 